Amen. Well, good morning, Two Cities Church. That's my community group. I love my community group. Uh, one of the things that we do is uh, we have these bold prayer nights together. You heard about that. And here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to have a culture of prayer. We're trying to have an atmosphere of prayer. We're trying to have an environment of prayer, okay? Uh, the, here's what we mean by this. Uh, the opposite of an environment of prayer or an atmosphere of prayer or a culture of prayer is zipper prayers. You ever pray zipper prayers? Zipper prayers are when you begin and end things with prayer. Now, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm here to build you up, okay? So if you do zipper prayers with your family, you're doing better than 90, 95% of Christians in America, okay? Here's a zipper prayer. Uh, before Johnny goes to school, you say, Johnny, come here real quick, we gotta pray. Or you're tired, mom and dad, and your kids are upstairs and you wanna go to bed, but you decide that you're gonna crawl upstairs and you're gonna kneel next to your kid's bed and before they go to bed, you're gonna pray. Or before your wife or your husband falls asleep for a minute, you guys say, Let, let's just pray before we doze off. Great, great, great. But that's zipper prayers. It's beginning and ending things. We want to create a culture of prayer here. Uh, here's how we, I don't know how to say it any more simply and any more succinctly. Here's what we're about. Making disciples, mobilizing them for mission, and doing all of that in an environment of prayer and worship, right? So why two weeks ago did we have the elders up here? And we said, come forward for prayer. Culture of prayer. Why did we start the year giving you this 21 days of prayer, which I hope you and your family have been able to walk through? Culture of prayer. Mark your calendar, March 20th, it's a Monday night. We're doing three prayer nights this year. That's the first one. It's gonna be a night of prayer and worship. It's our desire to have a culture of prayer. Now, you don't have to do bold prayer, bold prayer nights like we just did there, okay? But I will tell you, it's been exciting for our group. Did you see us cutting cake in that video? Some of you go, do you eat cake at all your community groups? No, that would be really cool if we did that. No, we didn't do that. Uh, that cake was there because a year ago, last January, one of the couples said, we're struggling to get pregnant. Will you guys pray for us? And that video was shot on the night where they did the gender reveal cake. Come on, guys. That was an answer to prayer a year ago. Now, here's our ask for you guys, okay? I, we like to keep things real simple here, but also very biblical. Here's what we're asking. Would you pray with each other and would you pray for each other? That's, that's how you start a culture of prayer. And here's what this means. You have to ask for prayer and you have to tell other people you're praying for them. And listen, husbands really struggle to pray with their wives. And here's why. Because spiritual intimacy is deeper than sexual intimacy. And a lot of couples, they will be physically or they will be sexually intimate, but they will never be spiritually intimate, right? Because prayer is the closest point between two people. So let me just help the, the husbands out, okay? Here's, here's how you pray for your wife. You say, honey, how, what can I pray for you? And whatever she says, you, next you say, Lord, and then just repeat exactly what she said, okay? <laughs> she will feel very loved. Guys, we want to believe God for big things. William Carey, the great missionary, he said, I expect great things from God, and I attempt great things for God. That's the spirit, the mindset, the heart we wanna have in this church. Let's pray, and then we've got an exciting two chapters in Joshua 3 and 4. Lord, I pray for a culture of prayer in our church, a culture of prayer in our homes, a culture of prayer and worship. Genesis chapter 4, very early in the Bible, the last verse of Genesis chapter 4 says, at that time, men and women began to call upon the name of the Lord. I pray for mom and dad to call upon the name of the Lord. I pray for mom and dad to pray for each other. I pray for homes where people say, I'm struggling, will you pray for me? I pray for relationships when, when we come to community group, we're saying to the people in our community groups, I genuinely have been thinking about you and praying for you this week. And I'm believing God for you, Lord. And I, and I, I pray that we would see so many answers to prayer that would strengthen and encourage our faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, anybody else starting to use artificial intelligence or just me? Anyone else using AI? Have you heard of this new website? Don't go here right now. There's a new website, ChatGPT, okay? It's so popular that most times when I go to this website, it's down. 
It's getting overloaded. So many people are trying it out. But here's what it is. It's, I don't know who's running this, and I don't know how it works, okay? I also don't know how my car works. Okay, it just works. I turn it and it works. I don't, know how, I don't know how artificial intelligence works. But I've been going on here, and I've been using it, right? In fact, in fact, I asked it to write me a few sermons, and it did. Okay, they weren't that good. I didn't preach them, okay? Uh, but they can write a sermon. I'm like, here's the text. Write me a sermon. This thing's really smart. And so one of the things that, that I did recently is uh, I went in there, and I thought, well, I wonder if it could summarize really complex things for me. So I said, summarize the entire Lord of the Rings series for me. In one sentence, I said. And they said, well, Frodo Baggins goes on a journey to, on a quest, I'm sorry, to destroy the one ring and to fight the dark Lord Sauron with a fellowship of friends. I thought, AI is going to take over the world. <laughs> Let me ask you, how would you summarize the entire Bible in a sentence? It's not easy to do. I mean, it's 66 books written across 1,500 years by 40 different people in three different languages. There's an Old Testament, there's a New Testament, and it's easy to get lost in the trees and lose the whole forest. So let me just give you the whole Bible in a sentence. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's the whole Bible. You long, we all long for Eden, right? What was Eden? Adam and Eve, God's people in God's place, Eden under God's rule and blessing. What was lost when we ate from the tree when our first parents did that? we were no longer in God's place and we were no longer under God's blessing. Why did Christ come and what's all this preaching and teaching about the kingdom? You ever wonder that? Like, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God all the time. The kingdom of God is that place where God's people are in God's place under God's rule. And if you go to the book of Revelation, you're like, what is the new heavens and the new earth and how does the Bible end? Oh, it's God's people in God's new place, heaven, under God's rule and blessing, worshiping him. I tell you that because if you'll type two or turn to Joshua 3, in Joshua 3 and 4, that's right, we're going to cover two chapters quickly today. We see God's people are going to cross over the Jordan. And this, we've been longing for this because we've had God's people under God's rule and blessing, but they've not been in God's place. They've been in the wilderness or before that they were in Egypt. And today they cross over and it gets two chapters. And this is really, really important because, and this is good to know, whether you're a business guy or a business gal or you lead something or you're a dad or this is, this is true. There are always two stages in leadership. There is vision leadership and there is get it done leadership, okay? And vision leadership is where a lot of people want to li live. Okay, we're going to be this type of family and we're going to go do this or churches. We're going to baptize these people and we're going to reach this city. Guess what? People will only put up with vision leadership for 18 months. You got to quit telling people where you're going to take them if you're never going to take them there. Get it done leadership has to happen. Get it done leadership is where people see progress and people will put up with a lot if they're seeing progress. Today they cross over. Here's the whole chapter three and chapter four in a sentence. Make it across and mark the occasion. That's the whole, ch ch chapter three is make it across. And I'm gonna show you how to do that today. And then the first verse of chapter four is mark this moment for you and for your family and for the next generation. That's where we're headed. We'll start in chapter three, verse one. Look what it says here. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shittim. Okay, listen. He wakes up early in the morning and uh, why? Because the day before, the last verse of chapter two is the spies come back and they say, God has given us the land. God is faithful. Let's go. And so Joshua says, I better get up early, right? This is here. If you want to write a word down or a phrase down in your Bible, immediate obedience, right? What do we teach our kids? Delayed obedience is disobedience. What do you, what do you teach your kids when they're young? Uh, obey right away with a happy heart. Let me ask you this. What is the last thing God told you to do? That's the thing you should do, right? 
God's not going to give you a next thing to do until you do the last thing he told you to do, right? For some of you, it's like he told you to give and you haven't given. He told you to serve and you haven't served. He told you to pray and you haven't prayed. He told you to forgive and you haven't forgiven. He told you to confess and you haven't confessed. I mean, who knows what it is? But there's something theologians call the dimmer switch principle. The dimmer switch principle is you get more light when you obey the light you've already been given. You don't get more light until you obey that. Okay, this is why some of you are in the same place because you haven't obeyed the last thing God told you to do. Notice also he rises early. I don't wanna push this too far, but could most of us get up earlier than we do? Some of you get up at the crack of dinner. Come on, let's be honest here. (laughs) Most Christians throughout human history, now there are some that can find it other places, but most people have to get up early to meet with God. I love what Charles Spurgeon, that famous preacher said. He said, may I look into the eyes of God before I look into the eyes of any man. I told my kids this and my daughter Addie said, was he married? (laughs) I said, I guess he was married. It's a great line, okay? Maybe he looked at his wife before he read his Bible. I don't know, okay? Um, R.C. Sproul, famous Christian, famous pastor, theologian. Uh, He, when he was older, he, he, he was saying that he was wasting 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. at night. He used to go to bed at 10, wake up at six. Get his eight hours of sleep. He'd go to bed at 10, wake up at six. He said, I'm wasting that time. So he started to go to bed at eight o'clock at night to get up at four in the morning. This was before social media and streaming. I'm not sure what he was wasting his time on, but you could waste your time even back then. But he was wasting the last two hours of his day. He wasn't redeeming the time. And so he found out I could be more efficient, more faithful from 4 a.m. to 6 p.m., 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. than I was from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. The principle is getting up early. There was an article written years ago um, called Slay Your Dragons Before Breakfast. And the whole idea of that article was do the most important things first, and if possible, do them before you eat breakfast, because that's when the day really begins. So the first thing he does is immediate obedience. Okay, we see that. He gets up early. He goes out. Okay, now look what it says here. Keep, keeping, that was just beginning verse one. Here we go. Um, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and they lodged there before they passed over. So he takes them to the Jordan, and he makes them camp there for three nights. Now, why would you do this? He says, a principle of counseling, and I don't know a lot about counseling, and I'm not a counselor, Okay. Those are the airbags on this, okay? Here goes. So, uh, but here's what all counselors basically believe. There's a, little, there's a lot that they don't agree on. That's fair. But what they agree on is you have to voluntarily confront that which you fear. That's mostly what counseling helps you do. Hey, you haven't faced your marriage, and hey, you haven't faced your mother-in-law, and hey, you haven't admitted to yourself that you're addicted to this, and we have to face it. We have to look at it. And, and that's actually what, part of what you do as a pastor or a leader is you say, come here, I'll look at this with you. We're gonna face this together. Let's, let's, let's look at this together. You have to look at the Jordan. Now look, this is the worst time to cross. And by the way, God will often ask you to do things when it seems like it's the worst moment. We know from the account that this is April. We know that in April is when the waters were the highest. It's a mile wide. There are other times when they could have crossed and it would have been more efficient. It would have made more sense. God often will ask you to cross at the time it seems doesn't make the most sense to you. So here they are, they're in front of the Jordan. They have to camp there for three nights. That means they go to bed and they hear the waters. That means every morning they wake up and they stare at this Jordan and they know we have to cross this, but I have to look at it first. And then they were about to cross. Let me give you the four things that happen when you cross. Look first at verse two, I'll, show, I'll give you the first one. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set up from your place and follow it. The first principle of crossing is prioritization. God goes first. So this is why the ark is talked about. I talked to, so many of you are new, you weren't here this summer. This summer I talked a little bit about the ark when we were in the series on David, but I'm gonna come at it a little bit different angle. The whole point is the ark is God's favorite piece of furniture in the Old Testament. 
okay? In the New Testament, it's the throne. In the Old Testament, it's the ark. And the ark was, you know, a box, but what was important was it represented the presence of God because what was in it. Now, what was in it was three things. Remember this? There were the Ten Commandments. And why is that important? Because we need the word of God because it's a direct direction for our lives. So great, got it. The second thing was uh, Aaron's rod. Do you remember this? His staff. It's like, well, what was that? Well, that was the power of God. That was the protection of God. That was the miracles of God with Pharaoh. And then the final thing was a little jar of manna, okay? A little Krispy Kreme donut that they, they put in there, okay? <laughs> and, uh, and that was to remind them that God provided for them for 40 years in the wilderness. Amen. So when we look at it that way, we say, this is awesome. Isn't God awesome? But also don't forget this, and this is important. Because that's, that's if you look at it from a God-centered perspective, which we need to first. Do you know what the ark also represented? Man's failure. Because what were the Ten Commandments? Do you remember the first time Moses came down with Ten Commandments? He got so angry, he broke them. Awkward conversation with God afterwards. Can you make a copy, you know, of these? So the, the, when you see the law of God, yes, it's God's perfect, infallible word that directs us, and it's also a reminder of our failure. How about, the, how about the rod and the staff? It's like, oh yeah, that's the power of God. That was the fear of Moses. Do you remember Moses was so afraid of Pharaoh that God finally said, fine, get Aaron. And then he threw the stick down. He's afraid of the stick. God said, pick it back up from the back of it. The, st the staff represented our fears. How about the manna? Yes, God's provision and their complaining. That's why what was on top of the ark was the mercy seat because mercy will always be over all of our sin and all of our failure. Hallelujah. And the ark, you have to remember, the ark is the closest thing we have in the Old Testament to the cross. And just like when you look at the ark, you look at the cross, you see two things. God is great and I am sinful. So the ark goes ahead of that. Now look, very interesting. Look what it says here, verse four. Yet there shall be distance between you of about 2,000 cubits in length. Now I'm guessing none of us measure in cubits anymore, right? We're American. We're the only ones who do feet, <laughs> right? It's, it's hard to realize the rest of the world's wrong, but we do feet. That's right now. Um, and uh, so it would be 2,000 cubits would be 3,000 feet or 1,000 yards, or think of it this way, 10 football fields. That's how far ahead it was, okay? Now, they tell, he tells us why. Look here. Um, verse 4 continued. Do not come near it, so don't get any closer. In order that you may know, here's two reasons, that you may know the way you will go, for you've not passed this way before. This is a very pr important principle. God goes ahead of us because we don't know where we're going, <laughs> and we've never been there. And if you realize, this is your whole life, right? Every time you do something important, it's for the first time. You're like, I'm leaving my home for the first time. When I, when's the first time you leave your home? The first time you leave your home, right? The first time you get married is the first time you get married. First time you have a kid is the first time you have a kid. First time you get cancer, first time you get cancer. First time you get grandkid, first time you have a grandkid. First time you retire, first time you retire. It's like, you're a novice, you're new to it. Like, you just, you know, we all want to act like, oh, I know what I'm doing when I go into this stage. It's like, no, we don't. And what God is saying is, let me go ahead of you and you follow me. See, all the problems in our life, the, the good definition of sin is I'm trying to get God to follow me. I'm trying to get God to follow me as I'm stingy with my finances or superficial in my spending or, you know, getting myself in enormous amounts of debt. And God's like, I, I don't follow you there. I have this whole give, save, live plan if you'd like to follow me. This is how I do things, right? We want, we want to, God, follow me over into this toxic relationship with this non-Christian guy. God's like, uh, uh, no, you follow me over here into a godly marriage. 
And see, repentance is I realize I've been trying to get God to follow me, and I need to turn around, and I need to start following God. So God goes ahead of the people, and here's a principle for life. And this is not some name it, claim it principle, but this is a true principle. It's called the principle of blessing, and it's if I want God to bless something, I need to put him first in it. That's the principle. If you want God to bless your marriage, I know the secret to it. It's not easy, but I know the secret to it. It will be to put God first in your marriage. That's the principle of blessing on your marriage. Now, you'll have to answer because everybody's marriage is different. What does that look like? Well, I don't know. I can ask the question. You're going to have to answer that question. And you have to ask God that question. And then what, when you ask God that question, you'll have a bunch of things come into your mind, mostly things you don't want to do. And those will be the things that you have to do to put God first in your marriage. Do you want God first in your finances? Well, if you want to be blessed financially, the principle of blessing financially, this doesn't mean you get more money and you get promoted at work. The principle of blessing in your finances is I have decided to put God first in my finances. That's why we say give, save, live. We give first to honor God. We save second to be wise. We live off the rest to teach ourselves contentment. That's the biblical principle of blessing on finances. What does it look like for God to be first in your family? What does it look like for God to be first in your career? It's the principle of blessing. It says God goes first, God goes ahead of me. The second principle is the principle of not prioritization, but the principle of consecration. Look at verse five. Then Joshua said to the people, here's a word we never use anymore, consecrate yourselves. What does that mean? For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now that's what we want. We want the second part, we don't want the first part. God says, I will do a wonder if you will first do the work. God says, I will do a miracle if you will obey this mandate. God says, I will fulfill my promise if you will pay the price. And we're like, nah, I want the promise without the price. I want the miracle without the mandate. I want the wonder without the work. And here's what we need. We need the word consecration. Now, you've never heard that word used. It sounds, it sounds religious. It sounds old school. But here's what the word means. It literally means dress yourself rightly. That's, that's what the Hebrew means. And there, there are two components to consecration. There's expectation and there's preparation. So if you want to live a consecrated life, the first thing is I am excited and I want God to work in my life. I want him to work in my marriage. I want him to work in my family. I want him to work in my neighborhood. It's the principle of expectation, which is the opposite of how most Christians live. Most Christians are just complacent. And they run through the motions like, we want you to show up here. I hope you show up here each week and you're like, I'm expecting God to move. I'm expecting God to change me. I'm expecting God to work. Get, I need to get my kids here because I'm expecting God. To, God works here. Why are camps, why are retreats, why are conferences, I've been trying to figure this out. Why are they so important to people? Why does God move in such a miraculous way at camps and conferences and retreats? Is it because they're, they're a couple days long or a week or two long? Maybe. That's certainly a reason. Is it because we get you out of your normal and natural environment? Yeah, that's probably also helpful. I think it's the spirit of expectation that's around the retreat or around the camp or around the conference. And I'll tell you who doesn't have that spirit of expectation, the person who goes for the first time usually. Like in the summer, we send our kids to as many camps as possible. Okay. <laughs> Come on, guys. Go. Um, and... Uh, and what's interesting is uh, every time I go there, I always meet, I meet the camp counselors, right? And these camp counselors, like on paper, it doesn't look like a great job. Live in a cabin with a bunch of kids younger than you all summer. Get up early, stay up late, have no breaks, eat camp food all summer. It's like, no, thank you, right? 
Um, but what you realize there is when you, when you talk to some young girl or some young guy and they're going to be a camp counselor for seven-year-olds all summer, you realize, oh, my goodness, they've been coming to this camp for 15 years. I was talking to my, one of my son's camp counselors. He said, oh, yeah, first summer. He said this proudly to me. He goes, first summer I came here, I wet the bed. I was like, how young were you, you know? He came when he was seven years old. God had done such a work in his life. And then what you do as a camp counselor is you actually just, you just go, okay, you little 10-year-old boys, you have no idea how God's going to work this summer. I have such expectation for you. And there's just a spirit of expectation that's around camps. When I got here, that's, everyone was talking about Camp Marywood. I came to Christ at Camp Marywood. My kids came to Christ at Camp Marywood. I was a camp counselor. It's all expectation. We need more of a spirit of expectation. I walk into my home, I expect God to work. I walk into my business, I expect God to work. I walk into my neighborhood, I believe God's at work. But the second, so that's the fun one. That's the fun one to talk about. Ha ha, you know. Yay, expectation, let's all be excited about it. You're not gonna like the other part. It's preparation. It's, it's basically, what do you need to stop doing? It's not really a fun conversation to have. You know, it's like, or maybe what do you need to start doing? Those are usually different things. Sometimes you need to stop doing things. You need to stop doing things that go against your own conscience. You need to stop doing things that you're hiding. You need to stop doing things that make you weak. You need to stop doing things you're ashamed of. Then you need to start doing a bunch of things, and who knows what those are? A lot of things, probably. Maybe you could manage one or two new things you could start doing. You know, you need to start being around the right type of people. You need to start reading your Bible and and the other thing you're not going to like about preparation is the word consecration is almost always in the Old Testament used to talk about our sexuality. I told you you weren't going to like this part either. Because, you know, our sexuality is where our brokenness is most clearly felt and where our rebellion is most clearly seen. And there's a, there's a get your sexuality in alignment with the Word of God and submit it to the Lord. And it's hard for all of us because we're all broken sexually. But there is a blessing on the other side of being fully submitted to the Lord and say, Lord, I, am a, I want to be a clean vessel who you can use. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, I'm not very consecrated, and the Lord's using me. Well, maybe he could use you a lot more. Maybe you haven't even seen how God could use you if you would be fully devoted to him. John Wesley used to say something like, he used to say something like, give me 10 men who love nothing but God and fear nothing but sin and will take on the whole world. So it's the principle of consecration. I need to prepare my heart. It's the principle of prioritization. God needs to go first. And then here's a strange one, the principle of exaltation. Look at verse five. Look what it says here. Or I'm sorry, verse seven. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you. And, you, and if you're Joshua, you're like, no, God, I exalt you. This is weird. You exalt me? Well, look what he says here. He says, Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I want to talk about a theology and a biblical understanding of exaltation, because the Bible talks about exaltation in three ways, one of which you're going to go, of course, and you're going to nod your head, and it's going to make a lot of sense, and the other two are going to bother you, probably, if you've never heard them before which you probably haven't. Uh, the first one is that we exalt God, and that makes sense. Like, I get it. That's the whole Psalms. I get it. That's what we just did when we sang songs, um, that when I, pray, I praise God in my own prayers, I thank him for who he is. Um, when I share Christ with other people, I'm basically praising God to other people, and I get all that. So we feel really comfortable with the, you know, we exalt God. 
Here's the second one that we don't feel comfortable with, but is true. God exalts God. Amen. And it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. And, and, and if you can't get there emotionally, because we live in a very man-centered world, it's like, okay, does God love anything more than you? The answer is yes, him. Well, think about it. Just think about it logically, because emotionally, it'll, it'll mess with you a little bit if you've ever heard this. You'll be like, this, this makes you, God's, God sounds big and scary when, when we talk about him this way. Well, he is big and scary <laughs> in, in a way. But think about it this way. If God loved anyone or anything more than himself, he'd be committing idolatry. That's an interesting thought. Now, we struggle with this because we shouldn't exalt ourselves. So it sounds weird to say, God, why are you exalting yourself? C.S. Lewis wrestled with this, the real smart guy who wrote Narnia and all those books. He was like, I don't understand it. God's, God's always telling people, pray, look, praise me, worship me. He's like, that sounds like self-exaltation. And then he realized, wait a second, it's wrong for us to exalt ourselves because it's not right for people to look to us because we can't meet all their needs. But God is the greatest being that ever could exist. So when he says, look to me, it's actually the most loving, fulfilling, thrilling thing. Hallelujah. So we exalt God, that's clear. God exalts God. In fact, what's interesting, if you ever read your Bible and look for the number one motivation for why God does everything he does, like what's at the bottom in the basement, it's always ends with for my glory. Why did he save us ultimately for his glory? Why did he create the world for his glory? But the third one maybe makes others of us feel uncomfortable, and it's, it's that God exalts us occasionally. It's right in the text. It's not the first time that happens. He's going to exalt Solomon. He's going to exalt David, you know. He, he exalts Joseph to prominence. And so God does this. Now, why does this bother us? Because self-exaltation is the essence and root of all sin. And we don't like it when people exalt themselves. And we live in a social media world right now where everybody's trying to exalt themselves, right? You ever go on that person's profile and it says, I'm a public figure. And you're like, you have 22 people following you. <laughs> right? You go on someone else's and they're, they're, you know, their description of who they are, consultant and life coach. It's like, you're 24. You have to live some life before you can be a life coach. <laughs> But everybody's all about it. What is the filter? What is the story? How many pictures of myself? Who can I get a picture with that would be status enhancing? We are obsessed with self-exaltation, which God hates. But Jesus does teach exaltation. Look, he who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Who exalts? God does. Now, what's the purpose of exaltation? I want to speak about this carefully. God exalts, so why did God exalt Joshua? To help the people pass over the Jordan. God will often give a person a platform to help other people cross over the Jordans in their life. That's the purpose why God exalts someone. We, I could give you tons and tons and tons of examples. Think about Dave Ramsey. Some of you have prayed and asked Dave Ramsey into your heart. Remember doing that? Um, Dave Ramsey is a person who God, I think, has exalted because he has helped a ton of people reprioritize their finances and get out of debt. And, and, and God exalted him, and he used it for the good of other people. You ever heard of Joni Erickson Tata? At 17 years old, she was a brand-new Christian. She had a diving accident, became a quadriplegic. Over the last 50 years, I believe God has exalted her, and she has an unbelievable ministry to the physically disabled. How about John Piper? Have you ever seen? John Piper is the least cool looking person you have ever seen in your whole life. 
He's like 75 years old. He wears like, you know, all these old clothes. He's got his glasses and he just kind of walks up on stage at Passion and there's like 100,000 students there. And, and, and right, the whole point of a platform is to help people, point people to God. And all he does is he gets up there and he talks about the glory of God for like 50 minutes and everyone's like, this is amazing. How about Tim Keller? Some of you, many of you may know that name. Tim Keller, if you've ever wondered like, why is there among pastors a love for the city a recovery of church planting and an emphasis on gospel-centered ministry. Well, there's lots of people who helped with that, but the main person is Tim Keller. So God often will exalt somebody. Here's how do you know if you're exalted. Has God given you affluence or influence? Those are the two. By the way, affluence and influence are used for the people who don't have affluence and influence. That's the purpose of it. It has to be voluntary, but that's the purpose of it. Or is there anyone in your life that looks up to you for leadership? God's exalted you in your life. God exalts every parent in their kid's life for at least a season, right? Your kids, remember when your kids are young, they think you know everything, and then they turn four. Do you remember this? <laughs> no, but the, the, the stages that kids go through, and this is well documented, seriously, is, is my parents know everything. My parents don't know everything. My parents are idiots. <laughs> and then they graduate college. My parents knew a lot more than I thought, right? We all went through that stage. The, the job of a parent is to be a Joshua, to say, God has exalted me in your life for a season. And the main purpose of that is to help you pass over. Amen. So what you normally need, if you're in some kind of addiction, you're looking for a Joshua. Has anyone overcome this? Does anybody know how to do this? This is going to happen naturally. We need people to follow. I've met a lot of women recently, like I never read through the Bible in a year until I, met, until I found the Bible recap. And Terry Lee Cobble, well, man, she has helped me understand the Bible. It's like God has, a, she's got like the top five podcasts in, in religion right now. It's like God decided to raise up, to exalt this lady, and she's been helping lots of people, but especially women walk through the Bible every year for years. Do you need a Joshua to help you get over? Or do you need to be a Joshua to help someone get over? You're gonna be both in, in the course of your life. The principle of prioritization, God goes first. The principle of consecration, we need to prepare ourselves. The principle of exaltation, God often will exalt us or exalt another person to help other people. And, and uh, final principle is the principle of participation. Look here. If you'll turn with me to verse 12, here's what it says. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe of man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. This is the quintessential story of nothing happens until we obey. We, ha we have, and I don't know how it happened in America exactly, we have in America, we think that belief is intellectual assent. We think that, like, it's like, here, read this statement of faith, and which we have a statement of faith. We believe, hey, read this statement of faith and make sure you believe all this, okay? Well, you only know what you believe by how you behave, right? Um, and so, for example, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, don't go there now, but it's, it's the hall of Hebrews, it's the hall of fame, basically, or hall of faith. And if you go in there and you go read Hebrews 11, I don't know what anyone believed. Go read Hebrews 11. It doesn't tell us what they believed. It tells us what they did. 
And what's interesting is this, we, we often want a Red Sea miracle and what God wants to do in our life is a Jordan River miracle, right? A Red Sea miracle is when one guy gets to go ahead, Moses, he puts his staff down, everything parts and everyone goes, oh, that was cool. Okay, let's all walk through. And a Jordan River miracle, if you noticed it, it says that the water doesn't part until your foot touches it. You have to step out. Now, let me show you this. The priests are an example of this. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. So they, the priests go first and then drop down to verse 17. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on the dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Um, our desire here is to raise up a generation of Jesus phrase, priest. And a priest is basically someone who sees himself as a spiritual leader, right? So in the Red Sea, it was just Moses. At the crossing of the Jordan, it was all of the priests. A priest is a spiritual leader, and a spiritual leader is somebody who says, I will go first, and I will stand in the middle till everybody else gets across. That, that's, do you see, that's the two things a priest do. It's like, look, I, you know, that's a, now did everybody have to step in the water before it parted? No, just the spiritual leaders. They're the early adopters. When I think about the history of our church, it was our launch team. It's like, okay, all we have is the promises of God and 30 of us moved here and we don't have a building and we've never heard Kyle preach and we don't have any money. <laughs> Let's just take our next step. And, and, the, and, the, and the beautiful thing is when they stand in the middle and they make sure that every, there's 3 million people. They make sure every person makes it across. That's a picture of spiritual leadership. I want you to know that's the heart of our pastors here. This is kind of a sober and somber way to think about ministry. But I think about pastoral ministry, and this is what I was taught from older men, is that pastoral ministry is helping people get to heaven and helping people die well. I was just with a group of pastors this week in a different state, and one of the pastors, he's a young guy, and he took over a, one of those kind of first Baptist historic churches, not here, but in another area. And he said to us, he was telling our table, he said, guys, I did a hundred, we did a hundred funerals last year. And I thought that, that may be us one day. That will be us one day, probably. And part of our job is, a spirit, if you want to be a spiritual leader, you go first, and then you stand in the middle, and you make sure everybody else gets across, and then you go over. By the way, guys, this is a miracle, and we're grateful for miracles. We believe in miracles. We pray for miracles. We still think the greatest miracle God does is the conversion of a soul. But miracles are unique. That's why we call them miracles and not Monday. Okay? This is... They're called miracles. It's when God uniquely intervenes in human history and suspends the natural order and law of things. We don't have a lot, we don't see it a lot. It happens in scripture, it happens in the book of Acts some. But the main, what's interesting is, if you ever read a book on theology, um, there's all, the in most books on theology, there's a chapter on miracles and right next to miracles, there's a chapter on providence. Because it's the two, if you go, if, if I had to oversimplify, how does God work in the world? Miracle and providence. Providence is I'm organizing and ordering everything in your life, good and bad, for your good and my glory. Amen. I'm somehow working your marriage that you're not happy with right now and your neighborhood that you hate and the job you don't love and the illness you're sad about and your kids breaking your heart. I'm using all that and I'm using all the good things. I'm using it for your maturity and my mission. And I'm, I, God basically says this, I play chess, not checkers. And everything's moving toward checkmate. And sometimes it looks like I'm losing, but I'm not. And sometimes it looks like you're losing, but you're not. And that's, 
even more amazing in one sense than miracles. The miracle's cool because for a moment God intervenes. Providence is cool because he's working everything together for your good and his glory. Okay, so they make it across, okay? They do it by because Joshua leads them and they put God first and they deal with their own sin in their lives and they take the step of faith, all the things that we need to do to cross. But then look what happens here. Look at the first thing that happens in verse one of chapter four. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, like immediately, the first thing, as soon as they get over, take 12 men from the people from each tribe of man and command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. We don't know how big these stones are. They're probably pretty big. We do know this, that from the Jordan River to Gilgal, which is where they're gonna camp out, which by the way, Gilgal is what all next week's message is about. Is about. It's the most important place in the Bible that you've never heard of. Um, it's their place of operations, basically, in the promised land. And uh, anyway, so they have to take these stones eight miles. It's a commitment. To, but this is, they're gonna build this monument at Gilgal, okay? And look what it says here. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark, verse five, the ark of the Lord, your God in the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel. Look, he tells us why. That this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel. Here's the second thing. First, set a sign. Now he says, a memorial forever. So here's the principle. You and I have spiritual amnesia. It's one of what theologians call a noetic effect of the fall. The noetic effects of the fall are the effects of the fall on the mind. And one of the effects of the fall on the mind is we forget things, right? Have you ever just walked into a room and you're like, why, why did I come into this room, right? Have you ever just called someone they picked up like, I, I have no idea why I called you, <laughs> right? I mean, do you guys, we, you, there used to be a time where you had to remember things. They actually did this interesting study where they said the iGen um, is having more senior moments than the older generation who are actually seniors because they've never had to memorize anything, right? Because we used to download information to our brain. Now we download information to our phones. Like I'm 38, I'm still old enough. I had to remember all my friends' phone numbers when I was in, right? There was no cell phones. I just, I just had to remember what, my, I had to remember my phone number, right? Uh, do you remember when you had to remember how to get to a place? Like my dad, he's 65. We'll still be like, it'll be Christmas or we'll be at the house. He's like, all right, we're gonna go to this new restaurant. Now Kyle, here's what you do. Go down to Academy. I'm like, dad, just give me the, give me the address. <laughs> I, I don't need to know how to get there. It's 2023, I got an iPhone. I've got several friends who live in Louisville Clemens. I could not get to their house without my phone. <laughs> right? So there, there's a need to, to remember. Now it's interesting because they tell us that we only remember 10% of what we hear which is super encouraging to me. Yeah, someone who teaches for a living. Uh, <laughs> we remember 20% of what we read. We remember 80% of what we see. And so what's interesting is my, I've got a couple of friends who maybe some of you are this way. They, they, they bought record players recently. I'm like, what? Have you heard of the iPhone? Have you heard of Spotify? You know, why are we going back in time for the record player? Like you can only buy one record you can only play one record at a time. It's only gonna have a few songs. Then I realize it's, it's about the whole experience. It's about the collecting of the records. 
For some people, it's about remembering what it was like when they were growing up. There's all, but it's all, it's all tangible, right? Well, what we need, guys, is like we need our own ways to mark moments. So, so I'm embarrassed to say this because I've been here for six and a half years, but I finally went to my first Wake basketball game, which was a great experience. Went a couple weeks ago. And you go into a Wake basketball game, and what do you see hanging everywhere? You see all these banners. And you look up and you go, Wake used to be good. Right? You're like, what's the purpose of the banner? The purpose of the banner is to recruit, right? You bring in some, some star senior at another school and you just go look around. Look at all the things we've won in the past. It's to encourage the current team. You're part of this history of winning at basketball. It's supposed to be one of the competitive advantages when you play at home. I want you to see all the times we've won. It's just hanging in here. And I want you to look up at it and see it. We need our own versions of that. Look, I'll show you how they mark it. Here, here we go. Verse eight. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and they laid them down there. This is one of the first monuments in the Old Testament. We might say statues. It's interesting because as a nation right now, we're having a conversation about monuments, aren't we? We've been having this conversation for like four or five years as a nation. It's really interesting because there's certain conversations like, are we mature enough to have this conversation? And the conversation is not really, and I won't get into a bunch of examples, but um, the conversation is not over the statue as much as it's over the story that's connected to the statue. And so a lot of times we read things like this, we go, oh, how, how silly. They put a bunch of rocks and this. It's like, no, it was, a, it was a story and a sign connected to it. It's important that when you make it over, you mark the moment. In fact, look what Joshua does. He doesn't just mark it publicly. Look what he does in verse 9. It says this, And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. So it's interesting, from what we can tell from the text, God doesn't tell Joshua to do that. God says, I want you to go to Gilgal, and I want you to make this monument for all the people to see, so that when your children ask, you'll have a story to tell them about what the monument means. And then Joshua decides, I need to do something for myself. I need a personal memory of what God did here. Let me encourage you to consider marking three things. Three monuments. Have monuments that bring your kids back to the Bible. You know, I, I, I'm continually hearing stories of, I'm encouraged by this, parents, grandparents who are taking Bibles, they're doing Bible in a year or they're doing Bible over a couple years and they're taking a bunch of notes in their Bible and then they're giving it to their kids. Hey, God speaks to me. I'm, I'm somebody who knows and loves the word of God. I wanna pass this on to you and I want you to love it too. I heard one pastor said he, said, he said he's longing for the day when a boy comes down the steps of his house and his dad's crying reading the Bible. And he says, Dad, what are you crying about? Dad says, sorry, I was just reading the book Acts. I just want God to work like this. I'm reading about the miracles in the book of Acts and I want God to move like that in our, in our family. I'm at, I want God to move that this way in my workplace. The Bible's having a huge effect on me right now and, I, and sorry, it brought me to tears. We need, we need stories that, and markers that point people back to the Bible. We need, we need markers that remind people of church history. 
Well, you, should, you should read about George Whitfield. You should read about John Wesley. You should read about Charles Finney. You should read about Billy Graham. And when you read about these things, read about Jonathan Edwards, read about the first great awakening and the second great awakening. When you read that, what you'll realize and what you'll communicate to your kids is we're living in a desert. And this is not normal. And God has moved in power in the past and we should long for God to move in power again. But then we need personal monuments, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm reading this this week. I'm like, I've got to figure out a way in the next few years to get my kids up to Pine Richland High School. It's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's where I came to Christ. I came to Christ in the LGI room. Was a, there was an after-school event that a youth ministry put on, and the youth pastor uh, taught the gospel there, and that was where I finally decided, walked the aisle, got the Bible. I was like, I got to take my kids in that room and say, guys, we gotta, we gotta, I got to tell you the story. I, I got to take my kids to Brookwood Baptist, a small church in Elon, North Carolina, where I was convicted that I need to be baptized as a brand-new Christian my freshman year of college. I need to take my kids to Smith Dorm, where I lived for four years on Elon University's campus, and I lived in the same room, 111. And I need to take my kids in there. It'd be a little awkward for the freshmen in there. Hey, guys, get, it, get, get out of here. My family, of, my family of five needs this room for a minute. But, you know, hey, our senior year, there was a group of five of us that prayed at 7 in the morning every Friday morning for the storm in this room. And to see right over there, that was where our futon was. And Jason Teagle came to Christ right there. And he's a business guy in Atlanta now. We need stories of how to pass on the faith. I came to Christ March 28th, 2001. I'm like, why have I never celebrated that? Why haven't I said, guys, we're gonna do something awesome tonight. Let's go somewhere. Let's, we're getting dessert. We're going out. We're gonna just celebrate because this was the day God changed your dad's life. We need to tell more stories. Guys, and Christ goes before us in all this. I mean, Joshua is a, what we call in the, what theologians call a type of Christ. It just means he's a pointer, he's a picture, he's a parable of Christ. Because Joshua went before the people into the Jordan River and Jesus Christ said, I will go before you as well. And he, the priest stood in the middle of, uh, of the Jordan River until everybody passed and Jesus said, I'm gonna stand in the middle till everyone passes and then I'm going to let the waters of the wrath of God come on me. And Jesus' whole life was about consecration. Though he never sinned, it was all about consecration. In fact, the Bible says that he had a great expectation for the cross. The book of Hebrews said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And then he decided at the end that he was gonna mark it. He said, okay, right, the night before, hey guys, this is a meal that we're gonna celebrate until I return that marks my death for, for sinners like you guys. And he gave us baptism. These are the two markers and moments. They said the church forever, one of the things that makes the church the church is we regularly celebrate these two markers and moments. And they're not just for us, they're for the, the next generation as well. You know, it's, it's interesting. Lots of hospitals, including Wake Baptist, they have a bell in the cancer center. I don't know if you know this. And what happens is when you go into remission, when you no longer have cancer, on your way out of the hospital, you ring the bell and you go, well, why are you ringing the bell? I mean, you've already got the clean report and you've already told your family and friends and you've already celebrated and I found this out. The bell's not for them. The bell is for every person still in the cancer center. It's like, cause it's always someone's first day in the cancer center. And it's like, when you hear the ringing of the bell, it's like somebody made it to the other side and they marked the moments 
by God's grace, we need you to make it to the other side. And we need you to market for you, for your family, and for the next generation. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us make it across? We know that it's overwhelming. Some people, when we talk about consecration, they just feel so guilty. They feel so dirty. Well, we know we'll never clean ourselves up perfectly, Lord. We know you use us just as we are in many ways. And we know that it's because of the righteousness of Christ that you give us a righteous robe, Lord. Well, we know you go before us, Lord. I pray you'd give us Joshua's. There's some people in here right now and they just feel so lonely. And they're just looking for one person who could help them cross some addiction or some struggle in their marriage or some financial pressure or something, Lord. And I pray you would raise up a Joshua in their life, Lord. For others, it's like, wake up. What an opportunity. What a platform God's given you. Lord, there's nothing more exciting than being used in other people's lives to help them cross the, the Jordans that you're leading them through, Lord. And Lord, would you help us market, Lord? We're so creative in so many areas of our lives. Lord, would you, get, would you help us to be more creative in marking the most important spiritual events in our life and the life of our family? pray this in Jesus' name.